Hello, and welcome to the Future of Coding. My name is Steve Krauss. So uh, today we are getting back to the reflection episodes that I swore off a few months ago, but I've decided to return to. So um, if you're really paying attention, you will have noticed that um, I think it was after episode, uh, after research recap episode uh, nine, which wasn't nine in the list, let me see. That was uh, episode 18 of the podcast. That's when I stopped doing uh, research recaps and uh, just just did um, interviews from that point on. And my plan was to maybe talk about my research a bit in the beginning of, of interviews, but I didn't do that in part because it felt, I don't know, like slightly rude uh, to preload someone's interview with my thoughts about myself. Um, like, you know, if someone wanted to share an interview with their mom or their friends and like the first 20 minutes were just me talking about myself, it just... It just seemed a little bit strange. So I've decided to uh, resume doing these, uh, definitely at a less frequency than I had been doing them before, maybe once every other month uh, or less. I don't know, maybe more. We'll, we'll see um, what people think about them. Uh, in the past, I didn't get such great feedback from these episodes. M- mostly people were excited about my interviews, uh, partly because when I do an interview, it gets shared with the interviews, audi- the interviewees audience. Um, and so I get a lot of attention from that, but, but my, my, uh, these episodes are just shared with my people. Uh, so I guess that's, that's, uh, less, less attention. Um, but anyways, I got some, some recently good feedback, um, in particular from Kevin Lina, who, uh, who mentioned these episodes in a recent newsletter email he sent out. And, uh, so that, that's pretty solid encouragement. So, uh, so thanks Kevin. And here's an episode for you. Um, so, um, However, uh, despite not doing these episodes, um, I have done uh, three other reflections, 10, 11, and 12, in written format on my website, uh, futureofcoding.org slash reflection slash 10 or 11, 9, and 12. I'll link to those um, in the notes for this episode. Um, I also have uh, in text the notes for this episode on my website as well, uh, futureofcoding.org slash reflection slash 13. And I think I'll also link to it in, in the episodes page of my website. So that's a bunch of logistics. Alrighty, so um, it's it's been a while uh, since since I last gave an update on this podcast. So um, I, I I don't want to go through uh, ten, eleven, twelve so much. Um, just the the quick summary is um, I I um, had some trouble doing research for a few for a few months there, maybe two or three. I was worried about uh, the like financial sustainability of this work. I was feeling very lost, undirected, and so I kind of stopped. Maybe thought I was going to get a job. Uh, luckily, didn't do that. Um, started doing some some really great freelance work for a future programming company called Dark. That's making like a like a backend tool, structured editor thing. It's really cool, and so th- so they um, they've been uh, contracting me to do some research for them, and, and that's been just an amazing way to get back into this work and get really excited about it. Um, and, and it also alleviated some of my pressures of you know, finances. Um, I, I worked for a few different companies. Um, now I, I have another gig working for a first round capital, which is really great. Um, takes the financial burden off and gives me um, some time to do some, some real engineering work and also the time to do this research. Um, so so now, now I'm back in it. Um, but really one of the, the main things that's happened since uh, since I, I last gave one of these episodes, is uh, I, I have an, a mentor, uh, like an official advisor, kind of like you'd see in an academic context. Uh, his name is Jonathan Edwards. I imagine a lot of you have heard of him. Hopefully I'll get him on the podcast soon for an interview because uh, he has, uh, as many of you know, a lot of amazing things to say. And um, uh, I don't know if, uh, how well this will come out, but we've, we've thought about having maybe uh, the meetings that he and I have where he gives me feedback on my work. We thought about maybe recording some of those meetings or parts of those meetings and putting those on this podcast as well because I think it could be a really interesting um, you know experiment you know interesting data and context for people who who are just really curious about this work and how research is done live streams and and share, open sharing it's like a weird weird concept but um, but it works like I, I have a friend uh, Glenn Chiacchieri, um and also um, Jeffrey Litt, who just love watching Jonathan Blow, you know, coding. He's just like a master of coding. You know, I'm not, I'm not a master of research by any means, but, but just watching people do their work in public uh, is just, just offers such a great opportunity to learn from other people. So, so maybe we'll do that. 
Um, so Jonathan and I have had three meetings so far, um, one in June, one in July, and one in August. The first two were of Google Hangouts, and the last one was in Boston in person at a coffee shop, and they were excellent. And uh, in between the second and the third meetings, Jonathan's uh, given me some really excellent feedback on this paper that he's been mentoring me through. So, so we've had some really solid interactions just in the, the first three months. Um, so, so most of uh, what, what he helps me with is just focusing on one problem, really fleshing it out as a full paper, and figuring out where to submit it to and the deadlines and, and just shepherding me, th- me through it, giving me feedback on the process, yada, yada. So, um, so that essay, um, I'm submitting it to Rebels, R-E-B-L-S, which is a workshop at Splash. I'm submitting it as an in-progress paper. It's, it's six pages long. Um, it's, it's kind of hard to, to summarize. It, it, it's a, one thing about this paper is that, oh, that everyone, literally every single person who I've explained it to or has read it, pretty much strongly disagrees with it, including Jonathan Edwards. Um, yet I'm, I'm very proud of it, and I, and I think it, it offers a really cool perspective. It's uh, a paper that argues against the Elm architecture, which is also used in Redux and uh, CycleJS, Ununify, and others. I'm really glad that I finally buckled down on this one specific problem and really fleshed it out. And this definitely wouldn't have happened if Jonathan weren't uh, advising me through. Um, part of where this particular issue uh, came to the forefront of my mind is um, when I, I worked for maybe two weeks at this company called Repolit, and it had this very large uh, Redux application, and it was just very frustrating to kind of get a sense of how things were working. And uh, so that, that's where a lot of this inspiration came from. Um, so it, I think it took me about two months part-time, like half-time, you know, 20 hours a week, to make this essay happen. So I guess one month full-time. I think it was a little bit less than that, but we could just say that uh, as, a, as a reasonable estimate. Um, at the end there, it took me like 10 hours or so just to convert it from like Markdown to LaTeX. That was really frustrating and took such a long time. Uh, so I, I'll learn for next time that maybe I should start in LaTeX for uh, something that I have a feeling will turn into an academic paper. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad it is done and I will hear back um, September 25th if, uh, if it goes, if I'm, if I get it. When I submitted, uh, last week, I, it said, you know, you're like your submission number seven. So that can't be, so they, they probably don't have too many papers. They extended the deadline another two weeks to rebels, um, likely to get more papers. Um, uh, but, but it's hard to imagine they're gonna get that many more papers in the next two weeks. So likely I'll get in to this illustrious group of people, uh, but um, but if I don't, you know, I'll, I'll find some something else to do. And even if I don't, I will likely still attend Splash. Uh, I'm looking on finding ways to, to financially make that make sense. But Jonathan Edwards has um, really encouraged me to to attend. Um, so here, yeah, I wanted to mention a few more things uh, about um, Jonathan Edwards. So at our last meeting, uh, we agreed to, to slightly more formally enter into a, a mentor-mentee advisor relationship. Um, where he would, where we, we'd talk every two or four weeks, depending on how much work I'm able to get done. Uh, he'd advise me on what to submit to, what to write about, um, and, and he would help review my papers. Potentially on some of them, he'd contribute enough to merit uh, being a co-author on some of my papers, which you know, sounds great to me. As he explained, in the academic circles, uh, single-authored papers are like almost a red flag. Uh, so it's like nice to have more than one mentor, uh, more than one person on the paper, and uh, and his name carries a lot of weight. So you know, I, I would really be honored to have him co-authoring papers with me. Um, and um, you know, Jonathan is interested in like more of a group, uh, like a group of people who could get together and work together, almost like an, uh, an independent research organization. So the two of us, him as an advisor, me as a kind of like a grad student, that's kind of mimicking what uh, acad- academia has. Um, but uh, it could be neat to have a few more people in this like little rebel research computer science group. Um, but we don't want to like move too fast. You know, we want to take it slow. And um, like a good next step, a good first milestone would be for us to you know, co-author a paper in a reasonably serious place such as Onward! Exclamation point, uh, which is part of Splash you know, in, in 2019. So we have, we have a, a good amount of time for that. I think he said like May or so is like the deadline for those, those essays or those papers. 
so um, so that that could be a really great next step. Um, but then, yeah, it would be neat if we could add another person or two to this group, and maybe I could collaborate with them, or we could all collaborate. I don't exactly know how it would work. Of course, you know, financial sustainability is always a question. Um, like one way to go about it is to do it, you know, where everyone pays their own way. You know, I I, I found my own funding. Jonathan has his own funding. You know, if people if people want to work with us, maybe they too can find their own funding. Um, and eventually, I guess if we're if we're that successful as, as like an independent lab, maybe someone somewhere would get us funding, or, we, or maybe we're able to one day apply for our own funding. But or or maybe f- find some other way, like like run a conference or something. But uh, in the meantime. Um, I think it's just going to be Jonathan and I, uh, and I'm very excited about it. Um, here, I had a few other notes. He, oh, he's really great at telling me which papers to read and which not to read. He's like an encyclopedia as far as that goes. Um, he urged me to apply to the full week of Splash, uh, so I'm excited for that. Oh, w- w- one topic that Jonathan and I often talk about is the co-design of, of programming language interfaces. So usually you, you have, um, on the one hand... Uh, the the interpreted school like small talk, and scratch and Brett Victor and Alan Kay, this is very much the West Coast school uh, of of computer science, and then the East Coast school and then the East Coast is more compiled things. Uh, this doesn't entirely make sense, but you know, like Haskell's all the way east, I guess even more east than the East Coast, and um, and a lot of the small talk people are, are are West Coast, I guess. I don't know. It doesn't really make sense the the, the ge- geographic ideas, but. It does a little bit. Anyways, um, a lot of people are either compiler writers or interpreter writers. And as I mentioned in my last podcast with Omar Rizwan, um, when, when you go to design an interpreter or a compiler, it kind of changes the way you think about things. And so most people are biased on one side or the other. But Jonathan Edwards is maybe one of the only people who really tries to straddle it completely and be one foot on each side, one foot on semantics and the model of the programming language and the other foot on the UI of it. Um, and and I'm, I think I'm trying to follow in, in those footsteps, really try and straddle the line and co-design the language towards the UI, uh, design them towards each other. And so um, to give you a broader perspective, that's kind of what I'm doing with this, uh, this paper for functional reactive programming. You know, I'm, I'm arguing against the Elm architecture, but not just for its own sake. I'm not you know, trying to ar- articulate for a better architecture that we should use with React. I, I'm really looking for the semantics for a user interface construction environment. Uh, and once I have the semantics, then I'll, I'll work a little bit more on the user interface and on the semantics. You, know, you kind of have to go back and forth and grow them together. Um, to make it a little more specific, I'm working um, up towards maybe something that looks a lot like Scratch, MIT's Scratch programming language for kids, but uh, more functional reactive. Um, so, so the semantics of it will be very different. And the reason I need to work on semantics first is because I don't really think there's a great semantic foundation for functional reactive programming yet. You know, I found this reflex library, which is pretty good, uh, and, and it gave me enough intuition to go from there. But I, I think I'm going to need more work on the semantics, and then, of course, a ton of work on the user interface, the visual metaphors, all of those things that Scratch really does well. But I'm going to need to, you know, kind of do an entirely different thing uh, for, for, my, uh, for, for functional reactive Scratch. Um, all right, so that's um, Jonathan Edwards and my paper. And I gave you a little preview of FRP Scratch, which I wasn't planning to talk on until later on in this episode. Um, here, I want to talk a bit about independent research and how this whole uh, thing with Jonathan Edwards kind of got started. So Nadia, uh, I really don't know how to pronounce her last name, Engel, Engelbart. Um, let, me, let me check. Na, Nadia Engelball. Um, maybe I'll have her on the podcast one day and she'll, she'll teach me how to say her name. Um, she has had a really large positive impact on my work. Uh, a lot of her, I've been following her, you know, like, like most of us, uh, since she kind of came onto the scene out of nowhere, talking about uh, the sustainability of open source. Um, then she went on to work at GitHub. They snatched her up like, after a year of her blogging. Um, and then she, she's now at uh, Protocol Labs doing research. So she has a really uh, great setup and she has a w- wonderful wonderful voice and uh, yeah so I, I, I've been following her for a while but recently she just published an article on independent research the idea of a gentleman scientist which um, you know is exactly what I'm trying to do which is what Jonathan Edwards does and um, she kind of puts it in a historical context this has been going on for a, a long long time and it's really helped me explain to myself and others uh, what it is that I'm trying to do here with this independent research and um, 
it connected me to Philip Guo, who's really been taken with this idea. He, um, he sent me, he has a five part audio series on um, independent research, which was really great. Uh, and that, that series actually inspired me to, to turn my, uh, what was then my, just like a blog post about functional reactive programming into the, the paper I submitted to Rebels. Um, and it also uh, inspired, I didn't realize this till later, uh, that essay and Philip Guo inspired Jonathan Edwards himself to, uh, to mentor me. Um, I think the, w- the way Jonathan put it was if independent research is going to work, we need independent advising, independent mentoring. And so, so uh, he's living it and I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate Nadia and Philip's uh, efforts there because they have really directly impacted me. Um, one thing that I've learned uh, from Philip You'll see this in uh, the conversation we had that'll be on his podcast. Maybe I'll repost it on my podcast. Um, is he, there really is no free lunch. Um, it's not like researchers in, in academic institutions have it so much easier than I do. They too have to work to fund their research. They just teach where I'm doing freelance software work. So um, if, if you have a normal engineering job, that's the way you earn money. And then on your free time, you can do research. Um, there's really no free lunch. I guess, you know, maybe Nadia, who now works at Protocol Labs, maybe she has it pretty good. She gets paid full time to do the research she wants. But I imagine even even she has, you know, constraints um, with with that gig. You know, but maybe not. Maybe she has it has it good. Really, unless you're independently wealthy, yeah, you, you're going to have to do work for money some, some way, somehow. So uh, so anyways, I mean, I mean this to, to say how... Um, I'm happy with the setup I have now. And to be clear, that setup is um, freelance. So I am still freelancing for Dark, uh, doing research for them in my free time. I may also start um, doing some uh, essay writing for them. Uh, I, I'm also really, really excited to have a gig at First Round Capital. Uh, I, re- I work really well with those guys. They have me working on a project that, that I can pretty much own myself, but it's really important to them. So they're happy to invest in making it better and squashing bugs. So, so it's really great. I can work when I want and do my research when I want. Um, so, so that's all great. And I also, um, picked up a third kind of part-time gig at, um, the Jane family Institute. Uh, they're, they're paying me to write essays for their, uh, new blog. And it's really, I'm kind of too busy to, to pick up a third job, especially if I'm going to start writing for dark as well. Um, but they were really encouraging me to write an essay about dynamic land. And so I went ahead and I did it and I'm really glad that I did. I think it came out well. I'm, I'm excited about it. I think it explains the importance of an institution like dynamic land to a more lay audience. Uh, if you're a technical audience and you want to understand dynamic land, Omar Rizwan, who I just interviewed my podcast, he's got you covered. Listen to the, the, the episode. And also, um, he has a wonderful blog, a wonderful essay on the topic. So, so he's got you covered if you're technical. If you're not technical, I, I wrote more of a journalistic piece that hopefully will come out in the next few weeks. And so, uh, so I'm happy with this freelance lifestyle. You know, I, I only get to work maybe 20 hours a week on my research, which is a bit of a bummer. You know, it's, it's not much and, and I'm trying to do big stuff. But it's sustainable. I can do it really indefinitely. So I'm excited about that for now. And maybe if I'm if I get tired of freelance down the line, maybe I'll I'll find some other setup. Um, like I know my buddy Paul Chisano eventually got tired of the freelance and research lifestyle, and he raised money and started a company. Maybe that's maybe that's for me. Um, I I don't think that's for me. I I don't I don't love that that style. But um, but maybe maybe we'll we'll see if I if I um, have an an idea that's VC fundable one day. Uh, okay, so other other updates. I uh, my girlfriend and I have decided to move to London, uh, which is really exciting. Uh, it, it's not a it's not a done deal yet because I still need to get this visa thing situated. Um, uh, it turns it looks like the the only uh, as far as we could tell the only option I had is uh, to get this uh, exceptional tech talent visa option that they have uh, because I don't have a sponsor and a few other options don't work for me. That was really the only one that works, and I'm lucky that they have that. It's a really great option. If I get it, then I really can work for who I want and stay there for five years. And then after that, I can probably stay longer. So anyways, um, I applied uh, under the exceptional promise category for young people who one day will have exceptional tech talent. And I, I took the analytics from this podcast and the Slack and my website and, and some, some nice tweets that people said about, said about me uh, and put them all together, wrote, wrote, a, wrote an essay explaining what it, what it is that I do. 
uh, Jonathan Edwards sent, sent a really nice letter of recommendation. I sent it over to the UK and they approved uh, the first part. So I, so I was endorsed as having technical promise. Uh, 60% of people get, get this, so it's not that impressive. <laughs> and, um, and now I'm just kind of trying to convince uh, the, the British government that I'm not a felon. I, I sent them my, my, my fingerprints and all that stuff. And so hopefully in the next few weeks, I'll hear back. I'll get this visa. And then, uh, then we'll move over hopefully early October. So I'll be in London, in Europe. So um, hopefully I'll get to spend more time with my European tech friends out there. I know there are, there are a lot of people actually. Uh, uh, however, in London, I really just have one, one friend at this point, one confirmed friend, Stefan Lesser. Um, so uh, I'm really eager to meet people in London. If, you have, if you're in London, please reach out. If you have friends in London, you know, send them my way. I'm, I'm doing this new thing where I ask everyone I know or everyone I like if they have friends that they think I'd like in London. And one by one, you know, everyone has, you know, one for, you know, I guess not everyone, but some people, most people have one friend, at least in London. And um, I'm getting, getting these people lined up. Uh, so maybe I'll, I'll uh, not be so lonely out there. Uh, so appreciate your help there if you, if you know people. Uh, so uh, the podcast and the Slack have been going really well, I think, in the past month. Up until this past week, it really seemed like one, like every day a new person or two is joining the Slack. And Stefan Lesser has actually been doing a great job of instigating really interesting conversations on there. So that's been fun to see. Um, but, I, but I think people join when I publish new episodes and they find this podcast, they find my website, and they find the, the, that little link and they, they join the Slack. So um, I haven't published an episode in a few weeks. So hopefully now that I'm uh, publishing this episode and, and the one before, that'll re-instigate that. Um, I have a bit doubts if Slack is the right platform for these kind of conversations. Uh, people have been floating the ideas of a wiki, uh, but it's unclear what a specific future of coding wiki would have that the real Wikipedia doesn't have. If you go on Wikipedia's list of visual programming languages, it's unbelievably comprehensive, and each one is linked to a page that explains what it is. You know, So Wikipedia is a pretty good wiki itself. So... On the other hand, um, Slack is kind of conversational. It'd be neat if these conversations were more threaded and topic-based, but that already exists too. There's uh, tbh.cool.discuss or something like that. Uh, uh, Jason Brennan has a like a chat system set up. I, I forget, uh, through Spectrum maybe it is? I don't know, maybe through Discord. I, I forget what platform he uses, but it's you know on these topics and it's threaded. So that alternative already exists. So people can pick what they want you know I, I i run the slack so i hang out there but um i imagine he has some cool conversations where, where he's at um so so that's that's that i'm not gonna do much more than just host it and and see what happens um you know i've, I've been seeing really interesting discussions on dev.2 these days which is like facebook but for developers i don't really get it i've also um you know as as some of you have seen i'm really enjoying twitter these days having a lot of great conversations there I've been hearing good things about Mastodon, from, particularly from Andre Staltz and um, Paul Fraze, people like that. I haven't yet taken the plunge and joined, but hopefully that'll happen soon. I'm curious what's going on there and uh, you know what I'm missing. All right, enough about my social stuff. Let's talk about uh, some deeper topics here. So um, the last time Jonathan Ed Edwards and I met, we, we said some nice pleasantries, and then there was a pause in the conversation and he, he looked at me and he said, okay, so what's your goal? <laughs> and I loved it. It was you know, a really great question and it's a really great way to start. Uh, when I was teaching coding to kids, um, that was really usually the key issue. They'd forgotten what it was that they were trying to do. That, you know, they weren't like, you know, they were lost in the programming of the thing. Uh, but the main reason they were lost is because they forgot what it was they were trying to do. They, you know, they had a top level goal and then in order to do that, they had a sub-level goal and then an another sub-level goal. And, and they lost track of how they all connected to each other. And, um, and they, you know, they'd fallen apart. And so they asked me for help. And, and I was like, well, what is it that you're trying to do? And they kind of looked at me blankly. And so um, anyways, it, it's really important to focus on your goals. And Jonathan Edwards is really wonderful at, at uh, helping me with that. So um, I think I have a pretty solid answer at this point. My short-term goal is to have a functional reactive scratch as I was mentioning earlier in this episode. Uh, and so, so Scratch, this MIT 
built this thing, uh, Mitch Resnick, the, the uh, lifelong kindergarten group at the MIT Media Lab, they, they built this thing. Um, some people describe Scratch as a mix between, you know, it, it, as if um, Alan Kay and who is it? Maybe Seymour Pabbert had a baby, something like that. Um, I've since learned that Alan Kay and Seymour pa- Alan Kay um, was directly influenced by Seymour Papert. So it's really kind of in the line of, of Seymour. So Seymour invented Logo, and then Logo kind of begat Scratch, or kind of, Logo begat Smalltalk, and Smalltalk begat Scratch, something, something along those lines. Um, but it, what I'm trying to build is also going to be similar to Smalltalk in, in some ways. So it's similar to Scratch in the ways that Scratch is amazing. Uh, kids can just immediately pick it up and start building really complicated games. Um, but it'll be similar to Smalltalk in the ways that I hope it'll be more real. Uh, like adults will use it to build adult apps, not, not just kids building it for games. Um, maybe to start it'll be a game framework, but you know, a game framework isn't a great idea um, because Scratch already has games covered. So it could be neat if I built a functional reactive framework that's as easy to use as Scratch, but you can use it to make apps. Uh, like web apps or, or mobile apps. So um, those are open questions. But I think at the very least, just taking exactly Scratch as it is and the target users, uh, kids, and making it uh, uh, more functional reactive, there are people who I think would use that. Um, and th- th- it's kind of a dumb answer, but there are people who really enjoy teaching functional programming concepts to kids. Uh, of course, there's the bootstrap people at Brown University who teach Racket to kids, which is a dialectic lisp. They have this like big bang model of, of computation, which is similar to React in a lot of ways. Uh, and then in uh, Canada, there's Christopher Anand, who's on this podcast, who teaches Elm to kids. Uh, also on this podcast, I had, um, uh, what's his name? Oh yeah, Scott. Um, Scott Mueller was on this podcast talking about teaching Elm to kids as well on the West Coast. Um, and I, th- I think there are like a bunch of us uh, teaching Elm to kids. Actually, Christopher Anand, um, who I mentioned a second ago, he has an, an iPad app, uh, a structured editor for kids to use Elm to make, um, to make games. And it's really wonderful, um, all that they're doing. But I think if you look at that iPad app or you look at the materials that Christopher Anand uses to teach kids, it, it's, it's really telling. You know, the, the reason I don't like the Elm architecture and why I wrote that essay um, there's a section of the app that, that we just encourage kids not to edit. It, uh, it's like, you know, this is where gravity is implemented. This is, you know, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't come together. There's like, that's kind of how the Elm architecture is. Uh, but that's what I'm trying to fix with, with an FRP scratch. So it'll be FRP, like kind of like Elm, but more FRP. Elm, Elm isn't really that FRP. Elm more inherits from synchronous programming languages than functional reactive languages. Uh, Elm has this really cryptic blog post where they explain how they they, they never really were about functional reactive programming. They were more about uh, the, the synchronous programming languages like um, Lucid and uh, Lucid Synchrone and Estereo, uh, which are more in other domains. Uh, anyways, so if I built this thing, at the very least, people um, who want to teach functional reactive programming to kids would use it. Um, but of course, that is not the real ambition. The ambition is uh, for everyone to use it. But you need you need a first audience, uh, and so kids isn't a terrible one. Uh, maybe game programming for kids, maybe app building for kids. Um, but but maybe maybe I could ju- just jump right to adults if I could um, find like a niche for for it to be good at. Uh, it, it remains to be seen. And it, Jonathan Edwards was really uh, pushing me to focus on this and, and have, have good answers to those questions. And I think it's, it's great to have answers on the, to those questions, uh, keep one eye on the horizon and all. Uh, but it's a little bit premature because I'm not exactly sure. You know, I'm still far away from having something that's even usable. Um, so um, I, I want to get there first. Uh, and, and I'm not too worried about building a thing to which there is, you're building a solution to a problem that doesn't exist because my ultimate goal here is to build a user interface for user interface construction and user interfaces are unbelievably important so much so many of the photons that are hitting our eyes these days like uh come from the user interfaces of our you know technological devices they they really make up so much of our reality and and despite them being virtual pixels we treat these pixels most of us as being as fixed as 
the, the, the atoms in our world that are actually, you know, fixed and hard to, hard to change. And these are the tools that we think with. And not allowing everyday people to customize the tools they think with to their own ideas and democratizing the creation of tools to think with to the world, I think is really holding us back. Another way to think of it is, um, just take one example in the future of programming. So structured editors. Uh, editors where you're editing a syntax tree and not editing the text of, of a program. These are unbelievably complicated programs to build. We've been working on these programs for decades and decades, and none of them have come even close to the fluidity of text editing. That is astounding. After all this effort, and we haven't even come close. These two Israeli guys um, working on Lambda, a, like a Haskell-like structured editor, they've been working on it like, since 2012, 2010, and, and they've made a lot of great progress, and, and, and what they've done is really impressive. But it, it's still not as good as text. You know, it, it, these things take such a long time. Um, and, and this is just one problem. But if we had a language, like, like what I'm trying to build, or an environment that made the construction of user interfaces really, really possible for, for everyone and, and easy for everyone power, in a powerful way, I think it could, re, it could change things. It could really democratize the creation of tools to think with. Um, I, I think it's, it's really... Uh, of paramount importance, this project. Uh, and so who my first audience is and how I get to a place where it's like the ultimate user interface construction tool, these are all really important questions, but the prerequisites are prerequisites and they're important in their own right. So um, I, my eyes are on the horizon in the right direction and I know I'm, I'm tacking in the right ways. Um, I'm not sure exactly how I'll get there. There's a lot that remains to be seen. Okay, so, so, so longer term goals. Um, there's this idea that, that Rommel, R0ML, uh, at Rommel, uh, some of you may have heard of Rommel before. He's on Twitter, at Rommel. Uh, so he has this term, uh, liberal software, that I've been uh, really enamored with. Um, he, basically, we have free software, which is similar to open source software. Um, basically, it's the idea that if you're using a software project, you should, you should be able to modify the source code yourself. And open source is similar to that. Open source is more about reading the source code. It's not about changing the source code of projects you use. It's more about reading the source code and copying and pasting parts of it into, into projects you use, or just using someone else's thing in your code and not paying them. That's kind of what open source means today. But free software is about, you know, if I'm using a word processor or an operating system and I want it to work differently, I could just change it because it's, it's running on my machine and so I can change the code running on my machine. But free software is not enough anymore because software isn't running on our machines. Think about Facebook and Google. These are all uh, services, Twitter, they're all LinkedIn, you know, all, a lot of these social services, um, but even just big services, they all run other servers elsewhere. And so even if these companies made their code open source tomorrow, there are uh, two major problems to allowing us to actually change the code. So of course we could use it, copy and paste some of their code to our applications to make them better, but there are two real uh, impediments to um, us changing the apps that we use. So, so the major impediment is that they're giving us the code but not access to, to modifying the runtime. So if I want to change the way Facebook works, I, I, like they won't let me edit the way their servers work. They won't, they won't let me push, to, to push code to their repositories, just read it. Um, for, and for good reasons, um, yet uh, this is a real impediment to changing, you know, to, 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 to free software. And so he's called this, this idea of the access to editing of the runtime environment liberal software. And there are a ton of security, a lot of concerns. Security is, is maybe the least of them um, that need to be solved in order to make this feasible. Um, but, but it's a worthwhile goal. Um, I think that the social web, Mastodon and all those things, because of its decentralized nature, that, that really, um, I think is a great tactic to, to solving the problem of, of uh, liberal runtime software. But another key problem, the one that the, the angle that I've been focused on is the comprehensibility of large software projects. When you open source something like Google Docs or Microsoft Word or Facebook, it's useless to everybody. Um, only people whose full-time job it is to understand and maintain an application like that can actually modify it. Um, unless you, you, ha you build a system with comprehensibility in mind such that people can casually, in the course of using an application, modify it. That's the ultimate goal. Uh, almost like every app you use on your phone or your, 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 your computer 
has like another layer or another view, kind of like inspect element. You could just pop over it. And, and I want this even on the phone because the phone doesn't have an inspect element. If you pop over and move things around, change them. And of course, we'll need really good permissioning systems so that you know maybe it only changes it for you or um, people who accept your changes or yada yada. Um, but but that that's the ultimate goal. Uh, that like you don't have just like a, a dumb little settings menu. Like you have this unbelievably expressive menu to to customize things. Um, and, and 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 if you just think hard, if you put on this lens in your daily life, you'll come in contact with a million little things that you want full programmatic ex expressibility uh, in in your daily apps but they don't compose they don't allow for that like i want you know i, I have my, my family and friends some of my friends on find my friends on my iphone i want you know when a friend leaves this place but but you know it's coming close to me but not you know like I, I want like a really complicated expression for you know when to let me know my friends are coming close you know about to arrive at my house so i can prepare um, it's not, you know, not going to change the world, this application. I could just ask them to text me. But there are like little things that would be really neat uh, to just have programmatically uh, in the applications that I use. And so that's kind of the world we're going towards. This liberal software, composability of apps, we're really getting, getting rid of apps, you know, breaking down those barriers and having a more computing environment somehow. Which is, which is similar in some respects to like the small talk operating systems, but I've really kind of, you know, to be honest, always, always hated the looks of those things. Um, the nested windows, the context menu, context menus, right clicking, uh, they, they always kind of bugged me. Um, but but th that's not to say I know how to do it better. All right, um, so uh, let's just talk a, a bit about some other key problems towards this vision or, or just things that are on my mind. Um, just to, you know, for interesting, you know, they're interesting. Um, so collaboration of, on, on code, this is like a really big problem. I, uh, I put out uh, this WoofJS workflow, you know, here, let me, let me make a note to myself. Um, WoofJS workflow on homepage. I'll make, I'll make a note to myself to put that on the homepage so it's a little bit more accessible. Um, I, I did it actually to attend a conference Jonathan Edwards put on about a year ago. Um, I may have mentioned it before here. It's it's a really cool way to think about collaboration. It's like it's similar to Git in that, in that there are branches. Uh, one way to describe it is that it's got the commit message reverse. So, so you first explain what you're going to do and the subtask of what you're going to do and the subtask. So you kind of put out a, you you construct this branch structure in your IDE about. Um, you know, all the problems you have to solve and the subproblems and the subproblems and the subproblems. And then you, you go to one of those tasks and you edit the code and each task has a has like a fork of the code. And when you're done with the task, you have it done and it merges it up into the parent and then you can work on other subtasks or, or you can even stop and go go work on an independent task. Um, and, it, and it keeps your code all kind of um, branched and forked and, and isolated from each other. Part of what's really excited about this is, um, like I was saying before, it really keeps you on the money. You know, you know what you're what you're currently working on, how it fits into a, a broader context, and how that fits into a broader context. Uh, this app kind of looks like Workflowy or Dynalist, if you're familiar with those tools. Um, and, and another thing that's really exciting about this is it enables multi-level pull requests and collaboration. Right now, if you want to help me with my application, you can submit a, bu a, 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 a bug. You know, you see a bug and, and you want to submit a pull request to it. You can do that, but it's just one level collaboration. You have to do the entire pull request yourself. How neat would it be if I could start a pull request, but kind of outline it and you could do some of the subtasks, someone else could do some of the subtasks, the subtasks of those subtasks. And so it really enables multi-level collaboration. Um, obviously in practice, this is going to be harder than I'm making out to be. Um, even just like a, a prototype of this was impossible to build. You can still play with it, woofjs.com slash workflow, but it, it's very buggy. It doesn't really work. Um, but but that, that's a problem. That's another problem that's going to have to be worked on at some point by somebody. Uh, but I'm, I'm putting it off for now. Another problem that has to be worked on eventually is the authentication and permissioning, basically backend stuff. Firebase kind of does that for me right now, but um, you know we, we have to do much better than that. Speaking of Firebase and databases, um, I think that's a good way to transition into this other topic that I've become a little bit obsessed with. That is very, very, very hard to describe. Um, 
So um, I'm just going to talk around it and hopefully uh, it'll build up a picture in your, your head. So if you think about uh, databases, so one of the, the main ideas about SQL, uh, how, it, how it came about, was this idea of um, like data independence. So in, in two different ways. One, uh, data independence from the representation on the file. So, so you, um, you can describe your data in a more abstract way and the programmer never has to worry about where in files it's split up. So, so that's one data independence. And then the other one, the one I'm more talking about, is path independence. So like if you have in, a, in JSON or in a Mongo database, if you have nested data that really goes deeply nested, um, what you're gonna have to do in order to make it performant is you're gonna have to have that data in a bunch of different formats in a bunch of different ways. And so there'll be a lot of different paths to get at your data. You can go through the post list or you can go through the authors list and you can get at the same data multiple different ways. And so what SQL has done is created this denormalized form or, or maybe it's actually normalized form. I always get that confused. I think normalized means everything's kind of orthogonal. So that, that, that would make more sense. So uh, what I mean by this, this phrase that I, I'm not sure if I'm saying the opposite of what I mean uh, is that there's, the data is only stored once and there's really only one way to get at it. You know, if you want a certain kind of data, there's, there's exactly one query to get at the data you want. There is no more than exactly one query. Um, and, it, and it didn't really occur to me why this was so important, um, but it kind of is. You know, I was, I was writing an app um, and I had structured it in JSON in one way, in a nested way, but it turns out that then I had to like apply all these transformations to get it into another format to, to do some other display it in some other way. And it was very frustrating. I was like, why, why does the, the choice of data structure matter here? Like, I, I just want the most abstract way, that, like the most essential way to store this data and then forget about it. Like, you know, I'll, I'll want different views over that data, but I don't want to have to like mess with the data structure. I just want to like apply views, transform, you know, on top of it. So uh, it got me thinking, you know, like we have a whole class in computer science called, you know, algorithms and data structures. And both of those things are really way too low level to be focused on. Algorithms are, you know, ways to carry out high level goals, like sorting a list. You know, it's very easy to describe what sorting a list is. You know, I want a list that has the same amount of elements as the input list and the same exact elements as the input list, but the order has changed such that each element is less than or equal to its neighbor, uh, given such given an input sorting function as well, let's say. So it's very easy to describe what sorting is. And then at a, in a different language, like an implementation layer, we can come up with a lot of different sorting algorithms. But who cares about those things? You know, we don't, that's kind of below our level of abstraction. It's below the level we care about sorting, I, I would argue. If we're going to, so part of where I'm getting at with these ideas is Brooks's idea of essential versus incidental complexity or essential versus accidental complexity. Essential complexity must be abstract. It must be singular. It must be being, not doing. So, that, so that's another related concept, being versus doing. So functional programming is being, and imperative programming is doing. It's a phrase I really love, and I'm sure I read I, I didn't come up with it myself. I'm sure I read it somewhere. I just, I, I've looked and I can't find it anywhere. The, the, the words being and doing aren't great Google keywords. So if anyone knows where that comes from, please let me know. Uh, but let, let's unpack that a bit. So imperative programming is doing. So when you, every line of an imperative program is, you know, store some value into a memory address, go to the next line of the code, uh, maybe do this, do this line if this is the case, don't do this line if this isn't the case, call this function, make some HTTP request, put something into a file, all doing, it's, it's instructions, all the way down. Um, but functional programming is much more like math, it's much more like being. X is twice Y. There's no doing there, it's just a, it's just a relationship. You can never change X, X is always twice Y. And Y likely is just a constant because that's mostly how functional programming works. Um, but then of course you wonder, well, uh, I want things to ch change over time. You know, I can't just have these transformational programs. Functional programming really shines well for transformational programs. You have one input and one output and you just do some transformation on top of it. But what about reactive programs? Programs that 
have to respond to various inputs over time. So in the past, the way we did things like that was, you know, like, you know what? We just need imperative programming. We need like an escape hatch. We need the IO monad to just let us go ahead and add characters to the terminal one by one or mutate the DOM nodes one by one. But then Connell Elliott came along and was like, you know what? No, we don't need that. We can, um, we can build a better abstraction and get, a, get around this IO monad thing. It's not that monads are bad, it's that the IO monad is bad. And, th and that's a really key concept here. Uh, Connell has this unbelievably amazing blog post. Will functional programming be ever liberated from the von Neumann architecture? And it's a pun on, uh, will programming ever be limit, li uh, uh, liberated from the von Neumann, Neumann architecture? Uh, which was a Turing lecture award. I think Bacchus did it. Amazing lecture. You, you should read both essays multiple times. I've read both multiple times and I still need to read them more. Um, there's just so much wisdom in there. I, I really think about those, uh, those essays, particularly um, Connell's, really every day. Um, he, he talks about removing, taking IO out of a programming model and into the implementation layer. So that's what I was talking about before with sort, for example. And, and it sounds like I'm kind of obliquely referencing dependent types. You know, I can describe a list and describe certain properties of that list in types. Uh, and, then, and then in another layer, describe like algorithms. So, so that, that's kind of related, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not a dependent types expert, so I'm not sure how related that, that is. Um, so anyways, back to uh, my analogy, analogy. So functional reactive programming is a way to specify reactive systems without any doing, it's all being. You describe the relationships between various entities that change over time in a declarative way, no being necessary. It's really, really beautiful once you, once you get that. And the way he does it, it, one is this notion of continuous time, but that's not really necessary because a lot of what happens in reactive systems is discrete time. Uh, you have events that occur at one point at a time and they, they change things. Um, so, so even though FR, uh, continuous time was, was a big part of it, the, the, main, the main thing that FRP does to me is it shows me that, that we can have declarative semantics for something that really seemed like it would have to be a doing. And I think here's the crux of it. The reason that things seem like, the reason it seems like we're always gonna need doing is because a lot of our APIs require it. So the DOM API requires you to mutate nodes by hand. It wasn't until we had React that we realized, oh, wait a second, I don't have to do the jQuery. I can just des describe it to React and React is just jQuery as a service. It'll go and do the DOM mutations for me based on this virtual DOM thing, but, but whatever, that, that's an implementation detail. Um, what we really have here is, is we, we, we have this new layer of abstraction. So, so React can be the doing and below it we have um, virtual DOM as as so your yeah, react can be being and, and virtual DOM can be doing. So, so this begs the question, what are other places where we need currently need doing, but if we just had a better abstraction layer, it could be being. And so one place that comes to mind is HTTP requests. It's a really good HTTP requests, file read and writes, uh, databases. These are all kind of related things. And it, and it seems like we need doing in order to access them but that's just a function of how they're built. HTTP requests are basically the equivalent of jQuery. You're like manually going to the server and telling it one thing at a time. Think about that. I, when, I, when I realized that, I was like, holy crap, it's, it's profound. M maybe it's more obvious to other people, but for me, it was like, I think I realized it in the shower and I was like, holy crap, HTTP is jQuery. Database calls are jQuery. File read and writes, jQuery. Putting characters in the terminal, jQuery. It's all way too low level and we need higher level abstractions. Now, what are those higher level abstractions? I don't know. I'm not Connell Elliott. I'm not, <laughs> I, you know, and, and even, even if I were, you know, you need a lot of time to, to think through these abstractions and, and may, maybe other people already have some of this work somewhere else. And if, and if you know about that, please let me know. Um, but, but these are really wonderful research questions that maybe one day soon I'll, I'll get to tackle once I've figured out my user interface construction stuff. Um, I think uh, as, her, as far as database go, databases go, uh, um, Datomic, the Rich Hickey's database company thing, is a really cool architecture, and it jives with this functional approach. You know, you save all the data basically for forever. You know, you could delete it, but, but the conceptual model is 
um, a database is a collection of events. It's very reacty in that way. Um, but um, but if you think about it, uh, the datomic model is actually similar to the Elm architecture in ways that I don't like. So um, I've also thought about ways to get around that and, and make it even more, I don't know, abstract uh, and explicit. But it, it's really its own problem that I'll have to deal with it another time. Um, uh, but, but at the very least, what, what this new attitude has given me is confidence to really embrace abstract declarative functional programming. Because in the past, I would look at those things and be like, yeah, they're great for batch programs, but... And I would list the things where you need the IO monad for, and I hate the, the IO monad. Not because I don't get monads, but because it's not functional programming. It's the program I don't like. That's what Colonel Elliott is trying to tell you. Anyways, now I can look at those places in, in um, functional programming languages where you need the IO monad and say, you know what, like that's, that's just for now. Like we're going to find ways to build better abstractions to get over that. You know, on, on the front end, you're not going to have to make API calls to various services. You're just going to describe what data you want and what data needs to be persisted. And like someone else somewhere down, down the level of abstraction will figure out how to actually get the data where it needs to be in order to fulfill your wishes. Uh, but you're not going to have to manage that yourself anymore. Um, okay, and so there's this... That's my I.O. monad obsession thing. But relatedly, I have this other idea about abstraction and canonicalness, which is not really a word, and definitionalness, again, not really a word. So the idea is, if you have something that's abstract enough, shouldn't it be singular? If I have the essential complexity of an app or a concept in my hands, shouldn't it be the only one? You know, if, 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 I, have an idea, if I have an idea and it's fully uh, specified in, in some abstract form, in that same encoding, you know, of course, if you have a different encoding, um, a different language, you could have a different representation. But in the same encoding, if, if you're able to come up with a different way to say the same thing, I feel like there's some information that's not being communicated into the encoding. The encoding is somehow lossy. So, um, for example, two more than y. Two plus y. You know, that, that idea is equivalent to y plus two. It's also equivalent to a lot of other not fully reduced ideas, but fully reduced, two plus y and y plus two, that's, that's about as good as you get. So, I think a fully abstract form to express that idea is the set of x plus two or two plus x. You know, you, you have to have them both to, to explain the idea. Or you say like, you know, x plus two and, and addition is associative. But basically you need in your encoding to explain, this is it, like this is the one representation. Because um, if there, there's more than one representation and you don't have that data in the representation itself, it leads to all sorts of weird things. Like, you know, how, you know let's say two people are working on the same project and they do the same thing, but in two different ways. And now they have to figure out whose is better. No, it should, it, it, it should be the same. Or should, the computer should somehow know that the two things are equivalent. You're not being abstract enough somehow. So that, that's part of the idea. Um, I, you may be asking, like, why do I care about this? It's, it's hard to say. I, just for, for years now, I've been really obsessed with the idea of canonicalness. Like ideas, they're one place. And um, you can't talk about canonicalness without talking about hashes. I love hashes. A lot of pro, uh, it's one of my favorite parts about Git and GitHub. Hashes, you know, every version of every file I've ever worked on has its unique hash. Commits have hashes. It just, I can, I can highlight lines on a hash. It's just so great to be able to refer to exactly what I'm talking about and never have it change. So I think it would be neat if, if the same thing could be true about more things. Um, Paul Chisano's language, Unison, has a really cool system um, for its, its like naming convention. So every language I've ever heard of uses uh, text-based names and, and namespacing in order to specify what you're talking about. But his system uses identifiers, you know, like most like user interfaces. So when you're talking about a function, you're talking about a specific thing. And if someone changes a function, they're talking about a different thing. So uh, it's, it's hash-based identity. So it's not um, name-based. So if, if someone pushes a new version of a library or, or a function within a library, 
you don't you don't pull that automatically. Your hashes and your code will refer to the old hashes. Um, the, the names, you, you know, there'll be names like superficially on top, so you're not going to be reading hashes in your code. But under the hood, that's that's how it's represent, represented. And then if you if you do want to update to the new hash, you can, and it'll take you through whether or not it type checks and and, and those sorts of things. Um, but I, I just love this idea that code is hashes. Like I don't have to worry about versions and names and pull. Like I can literally send. If I want some code to run on some other server, I send them a hash, one single hash, and and that hash, if they don't if they don't have the code for that hash, it goes to some server, maybe mine, maybe some centralized npm-ish thing, and it says you know give me the definition for this hash, and you know recursively, and so it'll sync based on what hashes I already have locally and what hashes I don't. It'll just whoop, just send me all the data I need to run this program, and all of a sudden I'm, I'm off into the races. There's no resolving that needs to happen. It's it's canonical, you know, it's just it's hashes. So anyways. That's, that's another idea I'm thinking about. Like, how do we make programming more abstract, more canonical, more hashy? All right. This is a, b- a b- bunch of rants. rants. I, uh, I hope you're having fun. I'm having fun. Uh, one, one final little ranty topic. So I played a bit uh, in my research for Dark with Wolfram, the Wolfram language notebook, and also Observable HQ. And, you know, I really had a lot of fun in both. Um... I also played a bit with APL. Uh, Rommel has, has taught me a bit of APL. Um, and I've been doing some spreadsheet work. And also, uh, I've really been inspired by Glenn Chiacchieri's flow sheets demos and, and his recent essay on the, the humane representation of a, a, a code library. And so I've been thinking about this notebook in infrastructure. And it's okay, you know. It's a lot of fun, but there's just so much more it could be, so much better it could be. I've seen a lot of hints of that recently. And so I've just been getting excited about this idea of, uh, I've been calling it a uh, data slice and dice ninja playground. Uh, I think I think that could be a really fun thing to work on. It'd kind of be like a lot like Excel or a lot like a Python or Observable HQ or Wolfram Notebook uh, or Tableau or Looker. You know, it's it's a way to pull in data, slice and dice, join it, graph it, that, that, that sort of thing. Um, a lot of people are working on this problem, but um, really only Glenn Cacchieri, uh is working on it in a way that I'm pumped about. Um, but he, uh, as, a, as many of you are sad to know, is leaving this field. You know, he, he worked in this field for a couple of years and produced some amazing work. He worked at, at Scratch, he worked at Dynamic Land and, and the lab that it was before it was Dynamic Land. But, um, and, and he has a lot of wonderful things to he's learned a lot of things and he has a lot of wonderful things to communicate, uh, into this world of future programming, but he's moving on, uh, getting his degree in uh, counseling or psychology. I'm not exactly sure which one, but he's going to be, um, you know, he's really switching fields entirely, which is, you know, sad for us, sad for us, but, uh, you know, happy for him and his patients. Cause, uh, uh he's, he, I'm sure he'll be great at it and he seems to, to enjoy this new role. But anyways, um, He's, he's got this wonderful idea, flow sheets, which he, he's turning into a business. I forget what the name of the new one is called. Um, but it's, it's you know, similar to Yahoo Pipes in spirit. But anyways, um, hopefully he, he's able to build something cool that we can all use and, and at the very least learn from. Uh, but but I, I do feel like there's a hole here that, that, that he's created. He's, he's produced all these wonderful ideas about where, where we can go with a tool like this. Um, but, but I don't know how much of it he'll be able to realize on his own now that he has all these, these new responsibilities. Okay, so, so, um, so that's uh, the Data Ninja Playground. I'm not going to go too much into like, how I think it could be better on this episode. I'm just not feeling like it right now. I, I, I'll put some notes in, the, in this episode uh, to take you to, to where I have some thoughts on, on that. Um, the short of it is we need to show both the data at all times for sure and the code mostly. So you maybe hide the code sometimes, but you really want to see the data and the code. You should be able to hide them when you want uh, and the relationships between them. And of course it should be reactive, more being, less doing. Um, so, so that is that. All right. So let's just chat uh, briefly about the next f- few months, the future. So um, I think in the future work section of my, my 
uh, FRP paper that I submitted to Rebels. That pretty well explains uh, what I'm going to be doing the next few months, maybe in the next year, maybe longer. Uh, who knows how long I'll be able to stick with this line of inquiry. You know, at some point, maybe I'll admit defeat and, and find another way to attack this problem. Who knows? Um, but anyways, uh, to give you a brief summary, I have, you know, found through this Haskell library reflex, some pretty good semantics for functional reactive programming. And in order to make the next step, I need visual metaphors. So why do I need visual metaphors? Functional reactive programming is hard, <laughs> very, very hard. Uh, it takes even, even smart people a long, like long, long, long time to figure it out. Even a bastardized, you know, simpler form of it, like uh, Elm or React, still takes a long, 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 long time to get your head around and learn. So um, that's a problem, but I'm making it even worse because I'm, I'm not only taking a simplified version of FRP, I'm taking the whole bonanza. I'm taking uh, cyclical and uh, higher order, which means uh, streams can reference themselves and streams can contain other streams. I'm taking the whole bonanza and um, I'm throwing it at people. And I want it to be easier than than what they had before. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a way to do this in text. I don't think so. I think this is going to require a real legitimate notation, uh, like diagrams, some, something. I don't know. I, I have an image up here in the episode notes if you want to see kind of where my head's at. Um, but like, I think Jonathan Edwards said, like, I kind of have to be Leibniz here. Like I have to like invent a notation, invent a vis- visual metaphors to, to simplify this problem. And, and you know, because Newton invented calculus, but it wasn't until Leibniz's notation that really there were a whole bunch of problems that existed that just disappeared with his notation. Like notations can really solve problems. You know, think about uh, Arabic numerals versus uh, Roman numerals. Notations really can conceptually make things so much simpler. So that's what I'm going to be working on um, the next few months. Hopefully I can stick with this problem. It's going to be hard. And um, more than hard, it's just hard to make progress on a problem like this. It's very, I think, zero to one. It's not like I can, I like know what I'm building. I, I have like a mock-up and I'm like slowly coding my way towards it. This is like, I'm gonna need inspiration. I'm gonna have like a lot of nothing to show for myself except for bad drawings until I have like good ones. You know, it's, it's, it's gonna be hard. It's almost like proving a mathematical proof. It's just, it's, it's hard, taxing, mentally exhausting work. So anyways, that's what I've set myself up for. And, I, and I'm kind of excited about it, but... I also know that it'll be tricky. I bought myself an Apple Pencil. It's quite a splurge, but um, I'm excited about it um, for, for this new, the new, fa- new phase of my research. Um, and yeah, uh, that, that'll mostly be my research is, is focused on. Maybe I'll continue working on the semantics a bit. So I figured out that I like uh, Haskell's reflex. Maybe I'll play a little bit more with reflex to learn how it works. Maybe I'll try and implement it in JavaScript to understand it better. Maybe I'll use CycleJS or my own little event propagation network because um, that, that's the kind of structure you need if you want to do cyclical cyclical um, functional reactive programming. So, so that might give me some inspiration or, or at least give me something to do when I'm stuck on, on the, the drawing aspects of things. And, and if I'm really stuck and bored or whatever, I, I won't force myself to do this work. Uh, it, it's better to just keep moving than it is to to get stuck and, and not do anything. I, I, I pretty strongly believe that. So some of these other topics that, that I mentioned here, um, like the Data Ninja Playground or the anti-IO monad, you know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll pick, pick up one of those and put, put, one, put um, this FRP thing on pause if, if um, emotionally I need to do that. So that, that all remains to be seen. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what's been going on with me the last two months and hopefully the next few months. Um, for the next week or so, things are gonna be a little busy this week. I'm on vacation next week. Uh, the next few weeks I'm packing up to leave to go to London and then I'm going to move in London. So I imagine, and and I have a few part-time gigs I'm juggling. So I imagine I'm going to be pretty busy. So maybe I won't get as much done as I, as I usually do the next month or two, but, but I think I'll get some good work done. Um, I'm excited to get back the rebels paper soon you know, in a few weeks and incorporate those feedbacks. And I hope I get in. Um, either way, if I get in or if I don't, I will um, package up my paper into a talk and put it on YouTube. Uh, maybe I'll put it, uh, I'll read it on the podcast, but it's, it's tough because it's very visual. So I'll, I'll do my best. 
Um, so look out for that in the next few months. Um, I am excited to, to resume these reflection episodes. I think I'm going to call them reflections instead of research recaps going forward. I'm excited to resume them, but we shall see. Maybe I'll do another one. Now it's August, so maybe I'll do another one in October or November. We shall see. Um, and I think that is it. Um, oh, if anyone has any free time, give me, give me some love on iTunes, five stars, or, you know, however many stars you think I deserve. And um, a nice note would be good. Uh, always, always helpful to be extra discoverable. And, uh, and that's it. Um, if, if you're listening and you want to chat, reach out. Um, oh, oh, always makes my day to hear from people who listen and get value from these things. Um, I, don't, I don't ask for donations. All I ask for is, is an, a nice word here and there. So um, I'd, I'd appreciate it. All right. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you guys soon.